0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com.
1: Hey, hold on. Chair, go down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Oh, that sounds better. It's all in the chair height. Yep. Life's better when you're short, apparently. Hi, sean hi derek so i was thinking we could talk about compilers <laughs> that's not what i saw coming <laughs> i have nothing to add about compilers oh we did oh, talk about we talked about compilers that one time we talked about compiler errors i just wanted to switch it around for once okay i thought we'd talk about a web development framework called rails never heard of it <laughs> yeah it's this new thing i've been trying out for the last three, yeah. or three or four years um so we've talked about your attributes api a lot Uh, or sorry, rails new attributes API brought to you by Sean Griffin. (laughs) And we've, we've said it so many times and I never really, this is, this is going to sound bad, but I never really looked into what exactly it was doing and I feel like you sold it wrong. So (laughs) I'm going to try and sell it for you right now. Okay. Because, uh, for people that aren't aware, it actually, Sean, the commit final commits for it, I guess, arrived in the rails five master branch. Is that correct?
1: The final blocker is pending any other – public, like, implementation-wise, it's completely finished, and then it's just pending any other quips about the, like, naming and public-facing API that people might have.
0: Okay, so the really nice thing that jives with a lot of what we've been saying about um, how to kind of separate out your business logic from your active record models, to me, is that the Attributes API will let you take an attribute on your model and map it to a domain object of your choosing – so you can say that column foo uh, in model bar should instantiate one of these types of new objects and have, you know, that associated behavior and maybe some associated validations with it inside that object. Is that fair? uh Someday, yeah, I mean, maybe mean,
1: the, the, the type object wouldn't be responsible for validations, but you could certainly – I mean, I, it would certainly make sense to have predicates on your domain object that you use for validations, I think.
0: Right, and you could have – Basically, so basically it's a, it's a custom getter and setter inside another object. Is that fair to yes, say? Yes,
1: but there's a little bit more to it uh, than, than just that. Because uh, So first of all, you get a little bit more fine-grained control over some very important details that right, using a getter and setter would, wouldn't quite let you do. Um, so you can control how it gets converted to something that before we send it to the database. Um, I don't want to say SQL, but like you control how it gets converted to the primitive the database is going to work with. You get to control. You get to separate out user input from database input because um, we actually don't go through the setter for database input. It will affect everywhere that we do type casting, which is not just attribute assignment. Uh, where it will also it will go through your type, and so it will now accept your domain object or anything that your type accepts. And then um, you're given the potential to hook into dirty checking because uh, some there's a handful of types that we've had the need, like where just comparison quality wasn't actually sufficient.
0: So it seems like there are times when I want to have a separate business object to represent a concept in my application. So what I do is I make an associated model, when in reality, all I needed this attribute was to have, I just needed this attribute to have some behavior attached to it. Right. And this seems like it'll be a nice fit for something like that. Is this, is that what you had in mind when writing this or? Pretty much.
1: um, It was driven. I mean, every, everything I'm working on is basically driven by the needs I've seen on our applications at Thoughtbot, so like out in the San Francisco office, actually right around the time I started working on this, um, I was out in San Francisco for two weeks, and um, Layla and I don't remember who else were on an application that was doing a lot of like geospatial stuff, um, and so they were using PostGIS, right? But we don't support any of those uh, any of those data types, and there is a gem that adds them. It actually creates an entirely new connection adapter that replaces the PostgreSQL adapter with this new one that has PostgreSQL and PostGIS, which actually is kind of the first problem. Because if you wanted to, if you've got PostGIS and then some other Postgres plugin that I don't know all of the Postgres plugins, but like if you have two plugins that you want to use both of them, and they both have gems that are implemented by replacing the Postgres adapter, you can't have both. And right. so this would have made it a lot simpler for them to just have very quickly defined a, a point type or, or radius or, you know, whatever 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 objects they're needing to use for querying. It wouldn't help with actually doing, like, some of the more complicated operations that the Relation API wouldn't support. But um, for just handling the coercion back and forth and then being able to do equality checks with where, it would make it really easy as one example.
0: Yeah. So that sounds, it's, it sounds like, uh, like we talked about a lot of the refactorings that were coming out of the changes you were making but i don't think we ever really spelled out like in the end what was this going to enable in applications yeah and it wasn't until like i think you had sent along the final or one of the final pull requests and i was kind of looking through the documentation and the code for it i was like wait a minute this instantiates a new object for every one of these attributes that i pass in this sounds like i can use this to have other objects involved in making business decisions for me in my application
1: And that's one of the things I'm really hoping. I'm I'm pushing very hard to make sure the the API stays this way. Um, Like, for the really simple cases, if you want to just change something from, like, If it was big, if it's a decimal because you don't want to have an upper range, but you want to use integers in Ruby for like performance reasons, right? You can just do the symbol integer and we'll go grab the right type and figure everything out for you. But when you get into the more complex stuff where you're dealing with your domain objects or you're composing things in weird ways or you're decorating anything, I really want to move away from like the macro style for everything and start having a little bit more explicitness. This object's getting instantiated here. These are the methods being called. These are the arguments being passed. Because, like, you can't. When we add a new class macro and it has a ton of options, we're basically saying you need to go read the the docs for this method. And then every single one of these options, which interact with each other in all kinds of crazy ways, you need to memorize all of them because nothing we're doing is immediately apparent knowing Ruby code from looking at this code now. If you go look at the implementation maybe, but when you replace it with a class macro, if it's doing something complicated, you are basically telling everybody else they have to memorize what this macro does and what all of its options do. So I'm hoping that for the more complicated use cases for this, we can move away from that a little bit and still have a, a, a nice DSL, but a little bit less magical, a little bit more calling dot new.
0: Right. So right now, can you compose two like columns into one attribute?
1: There's actually an API that already exists called ComposedOf. It's got a really scary-looking API. I'm hoping to replace it with something built on the Attributes API in the future, but uh, no, that's not possible right
0: now. Okay, so is of what polymorphic associations use under the hood? Because you've got your type and your ID column that are essentially representing one concept, or no? No, but um, attributes are on my list of things to look at that I'm pretty sure could be
1: implemented in terms of the attributes API. Belongs to associations are basically just composed attributes, and for the simple case, it's just composed of one other column with with a different name, and then for polymorphic, it's two. Mm -hmm. No, it's just a thing where, like... So it it assumes that the object that you're using has... You give it the name of all of the – you give it like this array of mappings um, and every two elements in the array are treated as like this is the column name and then the second one is this is the, the attribute of the object I'm building. And then it assumes the constructor takes ordered arguments of all of the columns that you're constructing it out of and then you give it like the class name and then it kind of figures out calls dot new, and adds a bunch of other writers and readers and then figures out how to map like – each column to and from the adder reader it's kind of the epitome of that like what is going on in this api is not even remotely apparent from looking at code that's using it like it makes sense when you go through the docs i don't like that api but um and i'd never heard of it until i until i stumbled upon it when i broke it
0: (laughs) so the the attributes api stuff you said was originally inspired by a talk you heard from from ernie miller at RailsConf last year is that yeah, Correct. that's right. Uh,
1: he was giving a talk that was sort of the rebuttal to uh, Yehuda's keynote, among other things. And Yehuda gave a keynote at RailsConf that was basically talking about building on shared abstractions and, um, you know, how we how we build all of these abstractions on top of each other and then we get to live on, on the 200th floor and party and people need to be on the 200th floor. And so Ernie Miller's rebuttal was basically, well, sure, but... The hundred ninety ninety fifth floor presumably exists for reasons other than to support the hundred ninety sixth. And I don't remember. I remember exactly what he was saying. Uh, like he, he, there was some funny joke in there that I can't. I can't remember. But it was just like you should be able to go there. It should just still. It should be just as nice and just a little bit more low level. He, he used an example that looked kind of similar to what to what what we ended up building. As like, wouldn't it be great if? when Active Record does its schema detection, if it just called this other thing that you could call on your own? And um, I was like, yeah, I, I've, I've actually kind of been thinking something similar for, for a while, and that does sound like a good idea, because uh, that's how DataMapper does it, and uh, Mongoid, well, Mongoid has to do it.
0: I don't know if I, I don't think I was at that talk, but I remember hearing about that talk, and I remember it striking a chord with me, like it didn't, like I was you know, still thinking about what I was going to be doing with clearance moving forward, and and thinking like, right now, anytime anybody wants to access something that i'm doing internally in clearance i've got to add this option for it at the highest level and then import uh, implement conditional behavior somewhere depending on that option so you're basically uh you know shooting fish in a barrel from space or something and uh i don't know whatever Uh, (laughs) and uh so that got me thinking more along the lines of how do i make it so that this is like a really nice built-up abstraction where you can jump in at the right level and I think that's where these, you know, we've talked about clearance before, but I think that's where the uh, the service objects that I'm adding for changing passwords and signing up users and things like that will allow you to jump in at various points uh, mm-hmm. to get the right job done. And I think the Attributes API will, is also another place where you can kind of inject your own behavior into your Rails models.
1: And that's what I'm trying to make is just, this is a thing we already do. Like, this is a concept, it exists, it doesn't have a name, and we're not actually modifying it consistently internally but it is definitely a concept that exists in an abstract sense and there's no good reason that you shouldn't be able to do that thing that we're already doing for you
0: right. one of the things i noticed when i was looking at those pull requests that you had submitted was so we've talked many times about how like in rails something is private if it's not documented right mm-hmm. and i'm reading through some private methods that you had added or modified in these pull requests and they are very clearly important private methods hmm and they're not documented because they're private. But as a developer, like, it would it would be very helpful for me to, like, as somebody who wants to get involved in Rails, right? If this method was documented that told me, like, this is how we use this method internally.
1: So that is not why those aren't documented. Okay. Those aren't documented because whoever wrote them, and it might, might have been me, I'm bad about this too, was lazy. <laughs> because a method is documented even if it doesn't have documentation. It's documented if it's listed at api.rubyonrails.org, which any public method on any object is by default. And we have to add a no-doc modifier okay. to the method to keep it from appearing there. Okay, but you can still have documentation.
0: So if you had a method that needed to be public because it needed to be accessed by other classes but was considered part of the private Rails API, right? Mm-hmm. Would the best practice then to, be to no-doc it but then go ahead and write your documentation anyway?
1: Yes, or even better, just have it be... A simple well-named method that doesn't need docs more than what the method name is
0: right sure um and i think i mean to be fair that's like you might look at something and think it's like simple and well-named but if i'm just opening this one file and i'm like this is where i'm starting my journey i know something gets called here yeah i might not necessarily know what that is so
1: well, and, and for you or anybody else who's interested in getting involved in Rails, too, that's a really, really good way to get started is just go find something. And if you, don't, if you find something you don't understand, even if it's internal, just open a pull request with a comment saying exactly what it does.
0: Yeah, because that would definitely be helpful. I know if it's in various places, like when I end up having to, I don't, I'd say maybe once every three or four weeks, I end up in a situation where I really need to check if this is a bug in my code or a bug in Rails. And it's usually a bug in my code because that's the way it works out. But sometimes I find myself stepping through Rails code mm-hmm. in a debugger and going, "What what is the purpose of this method? Like, is this the way it should behave? Like, if there was just a, if it was either named well or had some documentation, I'd be able to tell, you know, am I seeing the behavior in this method that I would expect um, without, right. having, without having to really understand the whole of the method?
1: Well, and, and, and it just depends on the code, too. Like, I'm kind of toying with writing up a full guide to typecasting and attributes, aside from the attributes API, just we don't have a good spot where we document the expected inputs and outputs for every type. But that is, I consider it part of our public API. Like, if if somebody opens a bug, even though none of this is documented, so technically I could just say, sorry, you're relying on internals. As far as I'm concerned, if you open a pull request that says, um, like... This value got cast to X in 4.1, but now it's getting cast to Y instead in 4.2. Within reason, I am I consider that a bug, and I want it to be documented somewhere, but there's not a good place to put it right now. So I'm thinking of writing just a full-on guide for it. And one of the things I was I, I was thinking of, and I've been moving some code around in preparation for this, is just like in like paragraph 3 of that guide, I just flat-out link to the type folder where all, the, all of the type objects live. It, it It's pretty approachable code. Right. for the most part. And then I've just been moving all of the objects that are little helpers, like the mutable module, or I've got a numeric module, or a time value module. I've just been moving those into a subfolder so that, that way it's just like, this is a, this is a, the nice, friendly, approachable folder. A place to put all your things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got a place to put my code. <laughs> well, then there was the load schema thing that you said was really readable. Yeah, right.
0: Like, uh, all of a sudden, uh, I finally understand what's going on here.
1: And that was that was the big, like blocker for making this public because it's in 4.2 like my the docs i wrote for it with a few exceptions will just flat out work on 4.2 the 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 interface for it has has not changed much it was implemented by overriding columns and columns hash. so when you declared a new attribute the the return like the return value of columns changed and columns is a public method so that becomes a publicly visible side effect but i didn't want to keep that because it's backwards because you're not defining a column you're defining an attribute So uh, I I decided I was going to flip it around before I made it public, which was a much larger endeavor than I originally expected it to be. But now we have a single method called load schema, and it sets the columns hash instance variable and then loops through it and calls define attribute with the columns name, goes and looks up the type object and the default value, and then that's it. And it just calls this thing that's publicly available to you anyway. Cool.
0: What's next then? (laughs) Attributes API done. What's next? What's next? Um, so two things I want to add
1: are composed attributes and right. then um, attribute decorators.
0: Hmm. Okay. Tell me how you. Tell me more about attribute decorators.
1: So it's already actually done. It's just I'm not an API that I'm happy with yet. But the way it works right now is you call decorate attribute type. You give it the name of an attribute, and then uh, you give it uh, some sort of unique identifier just so that this can be an idempotent API. Like, I want you to be able to stack decorations on top of each other, but if you call it multiple times, like uh, serialized, for example, is implemented in terms of attribute type decorator. And so if you call serialize multiple times, it should override the previous call to serialize, not serialize it twice. So um, I had to add a little unique identifier so that it was identical Anyway, so then that takes a block. The block will be given the original type, and you give me a new type. Okay. Most – and – all of the things that use it right now all use delegate class, which is kind of like simple delegator if you know the interface you're adhering to. Right.
0: So the idea is then if you have one type, you don't need to have another type for serialized. You know, if, if your type is foo, you don't need serialized foo. You just you have your type foo and you decorate it right. with serialized? Yeah, and, and serialized uh, takes a, a coder. Um, so the API of
1: serialized is you can pass either class name or coder. And so if you pass, like, JSON, for example, we will use JSON dump and JSON load to uh, convert this to and from a string to go to the database. If you pass us a class name or just nothing for the second argument, the default is YAML serialization. And then if you give us class name, we uh, only allow objects that are of that class.
0: Hmm.
1: And so that basically, if you give us class name, we'll create a YAML column coder. And, and then we get this coder object, which responds to dump and load. So we give that and the original type to Serialized. And Serialized will, in the proper places, call, it's basically an adapter for the coder more than anything else. Calls dump and load, adds a little bit of magic that is due to weird, quirky artifacts of Serialized. And then just calls super. So if you're serializing to binary and binary has additional behavior, it'll do binary stuff. Awesome. Um, So that's probably going to be the next one. I don't know what the final API is going to look like yet.
0: And then the other thing I saw, which was also last week or the week before, maybe, was relation or landed, right?
1: Yes. That was huge.
0: Yeah. So what was what were the I I read through a little bit of the history. Like there were various attempts to make this happen, right? Mm-hmm. And what were the what were the final hangups that had to be ironed out, do you know? Uh yeah, so the biggest there's a couple of
1: things. Um so first of all, there was a back and forth for a while in that David flat out thought that we shouldn't have or statements and that if you're using or statements you have uh, you're, you are structuring your data wrong. Eventually we kind of got we, okay. we, we got through that. <laughs> and then um, with some of the previous attempts the issues were just this. So my biggest issue with almost every previous attempt was the lack of ability to use reuse named scopes. Um, cuz you can chain two scopes together with and just by calling foo.bar but, uh, most of them just accepted a hash, so there was no way to do foo or bar. Mm-hmm. There's also, there have also been concerns with how easy it is to be confused about what's actually, what's actually targeting. Uh, having is also capable of having or clauses. And then, um, a couple of people brought up that just straight up or kind of looks like it's doing a union more than creating a SQL or clause.
0: Okay. Um, and then ultimately it just came down to implementation. Cool. So now the implementation is you can use name scopes and it's actually m- most readable when you do correct yes so you because say active or pinned or something like that exactly because we do
1: not allow you to pass a hash to it uh you give us another relation object right so if you were just doing inline like if you were doing where active true or it'd be
0: or where active true or where pinned true right so that's a long-standing issue that'll be solved with FIFO. so that's exciting. Yeah. And I think
1: it's going to kill, like, 70% of what people use ARL for. And
0: that'll be out in, like, three weeks, right?
1: (laughs) I kind of am thinking about, like, pitching us releasing 4.3. There have been a lot of big features the last couple of weeks that it kind of sucks to have to wait till fall to
0: use. Right. So 4.3 would include or. or, And attributes, probably. Yeah, as long as there's no real reason, right? If If they're implemented in a way that doesn't break backwards compatibility. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly like the, when I, I mean... Clearly, it's a lot easier for me to release a version of Clearance than it is to release a version of Rails. But my theory basically is, I don't like anything hanging out on master. If there's something that's usable, I want that out immediately. So, you know, I don't, well, I don't really pay much attention to the version number. I it just keeps going up.
1: let's let's do a hypothetical though, right? So Rails goes the Mozilla and Chrome way, and we switch to a six week uh, development cycle. Okay. So new release every six weeks. How does that affect our bug policy? Because companies on rail, who have large apps on Rails, it is a lot easier to up, upgrade to the latest version of Chrome than to upgrade a major application to the latest version of Rails potentially. And so we have to have some sort of.
0: Well, is, why is it easy? Like, it, like part of the reason it's easier is because the Rails changes are six to nine to twelve months in coming, right? So, fair. You've got a lot more changes, not just this one change that you're taking on this week.
1: But that one change that you're taking on this week can potentially affect hundreds of files. Sure.
0: I mean, like in the example, which I'm dreading as somebody who's working on a 3.2 app right now is the strong parameters mm-hmm. to adder accessible or adder accessible to strong parameters switch, which is a great switch. But when you have a 3.2 app, it's not really a lot of fun to go back and consider all those contexts again.
1: Right, but that but and then you guys are still on three too, because it's really, really hard to demonstrate the value of upgrading to the uh business owners a lot of the time.
0: Right. So instead you wait until the and you, you flip the equation and you wait until you can demonstrate the risk in not upgrading, right? <laughs> the solution <laughs> exactly. is like if there are no more security patches for this thing coming. So now we have to do something, which is a terrible situation to get yourself in. Well, and 3.2 is already halfway there because it's in major security vulnerabilities only. Right. But there's enough people still on there that you know that if anything came wrong, they would get that. Anything major. Yeah. Well, even it's going to happen. Like We (laughs) we said that I I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast or just me and you talking about it. But we said that 3.2 wasn't going to support Ruby 2.2. And it looks like that is actually going to happen in whatever the next release of 3.2 happens to be. Ruby 2.2 2 will be supported there. Yes, um, that did happen. So I think that there's enough people using it. And I mean, there's still people enough enough people using 2.3 that there's patches being made for that so still, I believe, right? There's still somebody uh, somebody AJ, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. But it's just a question of like I I know we have to support we have to have some sort of statute limitations for support. If we went to 6 week development cycles, we'd probably have to codify that in a length of time more than anything else and then it's just sometimes they'll cherry pick cleanly sometimes i'm gonna have to rewrite the same bug fix eight times
0: right so oh so you're saying the bug fix fix policy being like when you go from when you know it's it's you know today you start working on 4.3 you release 4.3 six weeks from now there's a bug in it do you port you know there's a bug that also exists in 4.2 right what's your policy on where this bug fix gets a bug fix gets applied and a lot of times you're right those aren't Sometimes they cherry-pick cleanly, sometimes there are merge conflicts, and sometimes the same fix is not appropriate for, mul- for both versions.
1: Yeah, one well, I've even had fixes where it's like, this bug exists on 4.1. I would love to fix it on 4.1. The fix relies on basically all of the refactoring I've done for the last nine months. It's not happening. Upgrade right. to 4.2, sorry. Right. Um, but uh, like, even if we just did 4.3, right? Let's say we did it in spring. So our choices are now drop support for 4.1. Or twice as much work for every bug fixed. Right. That wasn't newly introduced, I mean. Uh, which, I mean, we find new bugs all the time that, like, this was introduced in 4.1 and just has lived on unreported for, uh, and given that our, we're already so limited on manpower, it's not ideal for us to add a significant ma- amount of work for us to fix bugs. Cause it also discourages people from fixing bugs.
0: <laughs> and it's, it's also the kind of the difference between a framework and a library, right? Yeah. Like, If you're writing a library, you can get away with just, you know, a forward line only, and you fix bugs in the latest, like a bug that was introduced in 1.4. If you happen to be on release 1.9, guess what, it's getting fixed in 1.9. And you're going to, if you want to fix that bug, you've got to take everything between 1.4 and 1.9, right? I feel like that's a simpler line to take in a library that's pretty well contained versus a framework like Rails, which is your entire application that's built on it.
1: Well, I think the, the the age of the framework helps a lot, too. Like Ember, for example, does exactly the same thing. They've, they're on a six-week release cycle, and they do uh, forward only. But I think it's just because people don't expect stability from it yet. So they're you know expecting – I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know why people are okay with it there. <laughs> okay. So you don't think people would be okay with it if it happened in Rails? I don't think people would be okay
1: with us switching to a forward only, no.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, you're probably right. Um, people are – are still upset that I won't backport right. bug fixes to yeah.
0: 4.0. The other thing I saw happen this week, which is pretty interesting, is Steve Klabnick tweeted about how there were only two people getting paid to work on Ruby and Rails or something. Was that Or maybe it was Rails in particular. Do you remember? Um, we'll link to the tweet in the show notes. Yeah, clear. I don't
1: remember specifically, but he was basically, yeah, the, the whole thing was more people should be getting paid to work on open source. Right. Um, Particularly in Ruby
0: open source. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I'm the only full-timer on Rails right now right so right now you're doing some work you're being paid by thoughtbot and working exclusively on on rails for for you know your next this is basically your project right now
1: yeah um i had been on a i'd been on martial codex which was a very long drawn out project that i couldn't roll off of for i was on that project longer than i've held most jobs um (laughs) so i so i asked for a couple of months to get what i needed to get done for rails 5 done before i went on to my next project and uh they were, gracious enough to, they, were, they, they were gracious enough to be very supportive of it.
0: The other thing I thought, and it came out in the conversation around that tweet, which again, we'll link to in the show notes. But I think that the idea that the most value is somebody being paid to work full-time on, on something versus the, like there's any number of people and all of us at ThoughtBot are kind of included in this. Like we have Fridays where we contribute and we're paid by ThoughtBot and every contribution I've made while working at ThoughtBot, I've been paid to, to make, right? Yeah. In some way. And even when, before I was working at ThoughtBot, The contributions i made to fix bugs and rails i was generally doing on either my employer's time or discovered at least discovered on my employer's time and then fixed on my own time or something like that so i think that to say there's only so many people being paid to work on this that's true that may be true of a full-time in a full-time context but there's a number of people that are being paid to work on this and fix their own bugs
1: no and and it's and i mean and and i don't think he was trying to discount that amount of contribution but um in my case for example like i have very specific goals that are going to take x amount of time so if Thoughtbot weren't paying me to do this full time for for you know at least for some the period that they are like my only alternative would be either i am not able to accomplish my goals for rails or i spend enormous amounts of nights and weekends and basically give up my life outside of work right
0: and at that point, your only hope is that like you're parlaying, like that changes the economics of it to you. Now you're hoping that like I can parlay this into something huge, right? Like, like I'm going to do this work and I'm going to get something out of it because you have to, because you've given <laughs> up like you have your job and you've given up your life to work on rails. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and like, yeah, exactly. So it changes so kind of the, the cost benefit of it, I guess. And now because you're in a situation where you had these larger goals and you were able to get, you know, your, your employer, our employer to agree that like, Yes, you deserve some time to work on this, and it would be helpful not only for you but for ThoughtBot as a company right. that relies on Rails a lot for you to have this time to do that. And I think it's been enormously valuable to ThoughtBot as well
1: because, um, I mean, I, I say full-time, right, because that's just the easiest way to sum it up as it's the thing I work on when I'm not doing anything else. But I'm also spending a lot of time helping other developers with their Rails problems, poking in on other people's apps, seeing what what Rails is missing that could make their lives easier, and when we do encounter bugs in Rails, like I can get our app, uh, the bugs that affect our apps fixed faster right. than than would otherwise be possible. And that saves a lot of time, I
0: think. And just anytime there's a question about like Rails internals, my first stop is like, you know, I ask in our code room or programming rooms, but I'll ping you. I'll be like, Sean. <laughs> yeah. I know, or or if I have a pull a poll request that's been open for a while, not even in active record, I'll be like, Sean, can you, I've tried pinging this person. Can you Can you ping this person too? Yeah. Um. So those types of things, I think, it's been a really big win and uh it's cool to have you working on that full time yeah
1: no i'm i've been and i've been really enjoying getting to give back to the community as much as i have been too
0: yeah it makes the uh, the changes that i'm working on seem like like <laughs> week to week what i'm working on is like you know the big thing i just finished was like going through this factory file that was horribly formatted you know <laughs> like whereas you're giving the world relation or and attributes api and like i delivered some some factories uh, I, mean, I mean it's i don't <laughs>
1: think it's i don't think i'm any more suited for this than anyone else i've just
0: spent enough time
1: on it that i'm more familiar with the code base right exactly it's a big ass legacy code base
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that was the other thing that i think you said uh the other day which i hadn't really thought of it as is like rails is a legacy code base you know and kind of distilling some of your learnings working on on it from that angle is interesting
1: yeah, I think that I think the best people to work on Rails are .NET developers, or former .NET developers, I should say. <laughs> I'm a former
0: .NET developer. I know. That
1: was that was why I chose that instead of Java. Okay. I'm a former Java developer, too. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want to hear about the compiler thing I did? Absolutely, yes. Let's talk about okay. compilers. Yes. Okay, so um read attribute uh, is, you might call it a little bit of a hotspot in ActiveRecord. Mm-hmm. It's probably our single most called method in the entire framework. Um, so it takes either a string or a symbol, converts it to a string, and then it used to have all of this logic in it, and I've kind of moved everything out into, ob- into objects. So now it grabs a th- uh, an object that's an instance of what what's called attribute set, calls fetch value on it. Fetch value on it looks inside of an internal hash, grabs the attribute object for it, and then calls dot value on that. Now um, – there are a bunch of different attribute subclasses. Basically, they the attributes handle like the state. The type objects handle transitioning from database input to the value you expect in Ruby, and the attribute holds on to the intermediate representations and maintains that state and man and basically manages when the type gets called. And one of the behaviors that we that we had that I had to during this refactoring maintain was uh, uh, when you use the square brackets method on an Active Record model, or I think it's when you try to access an attribute that wasn't selected. Basically, if if you ever try to access an attribute that a column exists, but we don't have a value for it. You had a select clause that didn't include it. We have to raise an exception. Mm -hmm. So there is a subclass called uninitialized attribute, uh, which uh, takes a block. The actual contract was read attribute takes a block and calls it if it's uninitialized. So the uh, uninitialized attribute object takes a block, and if it was given, yields the, the name, and then we convert that up a few levels higher into the actual error. So, that block has to get passed from, it gets passed to read attribute, which passes it to fetch value in attribute set, and then attribute set needs to pass it to the attribute object. So, not wanting all of these levels to be coupled to the exact signature of that block, right? I used ampersand block and passed it through. Turns out that's really slow. Yep. Because we have to instantiate the proc object, convert it back into a block, garbage collect the proc object, and as it turns out, uh, procs are one of the more expensive objects uh, that can live in Ruby, especially like if you ever go see any of, of Koichi's talks on incremental garbage collection. Like procs, for whatever reason, can't live in the same space as other Ruby objects, so they see, they're, they're way more expensive to have around. Um, I don't actually understand all the details of why, but they are. So um, the specific difference between ampersand block or explicitly creating passing a new block and doing yield exact arity if block given on MRI on 2.2 is uh, twice as fast. So yeah. I figure seems like a compiler problem. Uh, <laughs> I didn't like that I had to couple all these things to the explicit arity and also it's just more verbose. Like it's just prettier using the same block. So I figure why can't the compiler just go see? I'm never using this thing as a proc right. and just skip the conversion and just pass the original block through. And that and should actually yeah, yeah, yeah. then be faster than the, uh, than the explicit form because the explicit form has an if statement, a method call, a new block, so that happened on JRuby. That got merged. Cool. Uh, it was a twenty percent performance improvement on JRuby. Turned out the ampersand form was actually already faster on JRuby, but now it's even more fast. And uh it should be hopefully happening on MRI soon. Aaron is uh working on it with me.
0: Oh, that's cool. Wow.
1: Um, Look at you. Ruby committer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm
1: just going down and I'm pretty pretty soon I'm just gonna be like writing drivers. <laughs> Mix instructions, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if you haven't looked at JRuby, I know recently yeah. they moved to, um, GitHub for their issues and code, everything else. Users at least do live on Codehouse or something like that. I don't know how okay. to say that. Which was kind of, when I would back, when I was using JRuby, when you had issues, you had to go to this Codehouse thing and okay. try to Fair look them up there as a pain in the butt. And so now everything's on J, on GitHub, which is nice for them. But that's a, that's a good project I feel like to get involved in. A lot of it is in, Ru- in Ruby itself. So you can, you can kind of look through things and, you know, if you know Ruby, you can contribute a lot there. If you know Java, obviously, you can contribute some too. But and they are really,
1: they're really nice guys. Yeah, Charles uh, and everybody, incredibly friendly, yep.
0: um, incredibly helpful, yeah. and and
1: welcome to newbies to their to their code.
0: Yeah, and when, I mean, when you get code running on JRuby, Ruby, is so fast, so yeah. fast. It's just unfortunately not super appropriate for development, which is, I mean, I mean, I mean, not inappropriate. It's not inappropriate for development. No, it just it's doesn't got start, start up time, right? Yeah. So it doesn't start up fast. So they showed me this thing at uh, RubyConf. And I
1: may be, uh, and just for take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt because I'm not 100% certain that I have interpreted all of it properly. Mm-hmm. But um, they were explaining the startup time problem to me. And it's basically that the JVM is having to go fetch every class from all over the file system, JIT them all, and then I think it then ends up ends up unloading all of the classes you don't use later on. And so I think it was like the Node guys or the Rhino guys, some Java JavaScript implementation had just done this thing where they had this gigantic binary that pre-did all that. And it was like an A meg binary. And you'd never want it in production because it was it would be way slower, like, over the long run for running code. And it's this gigantic binary for every single part of the JBM. But uh, it has no startup time. And for de- development mode, yeah, you just totally use that and then don't use that and then have the longer startup time, real binary in production. And so they were talking about maybe trying to get that worked into JRuby because they that's the biggest thing they're working on is startup time because they know that's the reason people aren't using it.
0: Yeah, I, I could say... I. If, if it were faster uh, in production, which it is, yep. and it were equally fast in development as MRI, then I would have no reason not to use it. Yeah. Other than the little warning pop-ups I get on OS ten about how I need to install a new version of the JVM because there's, there's some bad. new security update or whatever. Yeah, I did that. I just thought I installed the JVM because Goose wanted me to do a uh, the closure exercise for him that he's mm-hmm. working on an upcase trail for. And uh, I said, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then I realized step one was I need to install the jvm and i was like oh no he tricked me into installing a jvm and i downloaded it from the oracle website and then the very next day i got a a thing that said your version is six you know (laughs) six updates out of date oh thanks guys (laughs) well
1: it's funny because like people always confuse like the java
0: browser plugin with the jvm
1: and the jvm actually almost never has security updates
0: well then maybe it was the jre not really. I didn't pay too much attention to the or the JRE as well. The JRE is the, the JVM, like okay. the native
1: stuff. It's it's the browser plugin that's incredibly insecure and just it needs to go away.
0: Um, yeah. Nobody's doing browser-based Java right now, right? No. Anyway, got anything else? Oh, no. You you. I've been talking a lot. You should talk some. <laughs> I can talk I more like in I, the next episode. I feel like I always talk more. I feel like. <laughs> I I promise to talk more in the next episode. We can talk about the service-oriented architecture thing because that's yes. we're we're collapsing that now. So yeah. uh, we can talk about how we won over some people to collapse some applications. But I think this is a good episode. All right. Okay. Uh, oh, we got to do this wrap-up
1: thing. Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. As
0: always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Ring. <laughs> I'm
1: sure that'll get old eventually. <laughs>